Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Emily Lanetto. Emily is the head of growth at VoiceFlow. In this episode, we talked about how Emily landed her role as head of growth at VoiceFlow, Emily's experience in community building, and how she scaled the ambassador program at her previous job at Tilt. We also talked about why community is vital when it comes to churn and retention, the things early stage startups need to get right to start building a community, and how to manage the community effectively. Emily also shared her insights on product onboarding, including her most successful onboarding project, her main inspiration in designing a new onboarding flow, and tips and tricks to design the perfect onboarding. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Emily, welcome to the show. Hi. It's great to have you today. For the listeners, uh, Emily's a growth advisor and speaker and currently the head of growth at VoiceFlow. Uh, VoiceFlow allows you to design, prototype, and build voice apps for Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, IVRs, and more, all from within the browser. Uh, VoiceFlow has seen explosive growth since it launched in 2018 and now serves over 15,000 designers, developers, and creators. Emily is also the founder and co-organizer of Growth Toronto, the largest community of growth and product practitioners in Toronto, with 2,500 members and counting. Uh, so I reached out to Emily after reading a tweet where she stated that product retention is that the true product retention is when an employee switches to a new company and brings your product with them. Uh, so on Emily's personal tech stack, she listed Sketch, Webflow, Segment, Amplitude, Zapier, and Superhuman. So my first question for you is, Emily, is like, what does a product need to get on your list? And why have these products passed the ultimate validation of product retention? <laughs> I think uh, I think for my personal list, and I'll just like caveat that where everyone's list should probably be different. Um, but uh, at least for me, what I look for is a product that scales and is really adaptable to whether it is part of my personal tech stack, so help me to optimize my own workload or my own life, or something that provides scalable value for the team that I'm implementing it for. Um, and in that tech stack, you can pretty much tell like I'm not using segment to like track events of my actual personal life whereas superhumans probably making me better at responding to even some of my more personal stuff um but definitely that scalability and just a seamless really really good UX um and I think those are probably the core things that I'm looking for 
Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, looking at the list of tools, in, in a lot of ways, they make you superhuman. They give you powers that you don't really normally have. So, uh, especially like thinking about segments, segments in Zapier, like uh, you don't need to be super technical to be able to sort of uh, implement and uh, have technical workflows running for you. So, uh, again, with superhuman uh, and email, really sort of supercharging your experience around there. Um, so, Talk to us now, currently, you're head of growth uh, at VoiceFlow. Um, what is it you do at VoiceFlow? Uh, maybe you want to just give us a little bit of an overview. Yeah, so uh, I have been involved with VoiceFlow, uh, well, as an advisor in their early stages when they actually started as a company called Fable, um, which was uh, an interactive children's story uh, made on Amazon Alexa. So they actually started off as an Alexa app and ended up scaling and realizing that there's only so much growth that you're gonna get, and this is a conversation I had with them early on, uh, if you're bound by your own UGC. So what ended up happening was they ended up pivoting from making their own children's stories, which is kind of hysterical when you find out that they're uh, four guys, uh, all of which who don't have kids who just really wanted to solve this problem, um, to Storyflow, which enabled copywriters, the parents that they had built in this community um, that loved their app, as well as, any form of uh, author, anybody else that really just wanted to make a story, um, make that possible without very much code or any code at all. And that soon uh, pivoted to VoiceFlow, which then um, that was when I decided to come on um, or come on full time as their head of growth to help them now build out their product led growth strategy on how can we build the ultimate tool stack for people who are now designing, developing, and building really awesome things in the voice space. So making that more accessible, but also, you know, building new ways that we can actually interact with voice, um, whether that's in the apps that we know in Alexa or Google, or even beyond in interfaces, accessibility design, and much more in the future. Yeah, definitely. I think it is uh, the way that sort of interfaces are evolving and voice is coming more and more important. Uh, I also find it very interesting, like the story. Uh, it's always like interesting to see how people sort of pivot and uh, where they started out, like designing uh, kids' stories to uh, building an app that you can actually design, put it up and build voice apps is, is really incredible. And it's, it's probably very, very smart pivot on their behalf but um you, you said like people are building some amazing things uh, with voice flow like what are some of the cool like voice apps that you're seeing uh, being created at the moment honestly i think like the most rewarding part of my job actually is engaging with the creators that love the product and are so vocal about what they're building and it's honestly so exciting to kind of see because voice flow it, it's a canvas tool um similar to a lot of design tools where it's really up to whoever is going in to really create a lot of those things. And someone like myself might make something entirely different um, on one product versus somebody else. And one of the really exciting or a few of the exciting projects that I've seen more recently kind of come out is anything from seeing a dad who built a personal Alexa app for his son who just got diagnosed with diabetes to be able to ask, can I eat this? Um, and ask actual questions about, the food that he was given snacks and get access to all that information so he doesn't feel intrusive or that he can ask those repetitive questions, which is super cool. And that's like a really awesome, it is amazing. like yeah. at home use case. And that was built by a father, not a crazy developer or somebody who had immense background in voice. Um, and that's really exciting. And then you also see, um, you also see companies who are coming on board and maybe have been 
in the IVR space. Uh, so for those of you who aren't familiar with IVRs, that is that kind of experience that you get when, let's say, you call your bank and you have to press one or nine and it gets you to a certain point, everyone's favorite thing. <laughs> and uh, we see people like that who are able to come onto our platform and use us to help design out what that looks like, make it easier um, to actually prototype or test out what that could look like without having to use some of the more antiquated ways that they had been building previously, like Microsoft Word or Excel. Very cool. Yeah, so I can imagine you see loads of different uh, use cases, and I think you touched on it a little bit, but it's something that we spoke about just briefly before the call, uh, and when it comes to the power of community. So um, I'd like to touch on your experience a bit here, because uh, I know you have experience uh, from your past uh, at Tilt, and then uh, again at PartnerStack and now at VoiceFlow. Uh, and I think this is something we haven't spoken enough about yet on the podcast when it comes to the impact and the power of community uh, on churn and retention. So I think like if maybe we could get started is uh, talking through some of the things that you've done when it comes to building communities and what are some of the tips you get started. So um, let's maybe jump to Tilt and maybe you want to walk us through give us a quick overview of what Tilt is and like how you went about building the community there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Tilt uh, was an easy way for friends to send requests or split payments between friends. Um, very similar to, for those of you out in the state, similar to kind of Venmo, where you can kind of send a request in between uh, individuals or also made it really easy for you to uh, kind of use a Kickstarter mentality behind, let's say, group group activities or group expenses. So instead of your one organizer friend uh, having to, let's say, buck up a thousand or a couple thousand dollars to like get that cottage to get you guys all together, they could set it up in a risk-free way where it would only quote unquote tilt um, or charge people when it got to a certain number. So there's a lot of use cases around that. Uh, so you started out with university students. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the big growth levers for us, especially with the community, was um, starting in with university and college students is like that is one of the strongest communities and one of the strongest, most <laughs> strongest like ephemeral experiences that people have, but it continues to live on with them. And that is dangerously present when you talk to people and they are very in love with the alma mater or what, uh, what faculty they're a part of or what clubs. And at Tilt, that was a huge part of our strategy where um, in the States, uh, it started off with going after frats and sororities to kind of get them on board and uh, try to be able to align with the Greek community and scale rapidly through that. So getting their socials on board and getting them to use Tilt to collect for the various events they were holding, which would then in turn get everyone else uh, that was part of that fraud or sorority on board. So it was naturally quite viral. Um, and then more greatly, and this is where I think community really, really helped us grow, is when we went international. Um, and in this case, so I can speak definitely to what we did on that scale, where let's say moving into Canada, um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with uh, how it works out here is frats and sororities are far less um, far less prevalent in between every university or college that's out here. So our target all of a sudden shifted away from being able to very easily identify who were these key influencers on campus to who can they become or what does that persona actually look like. So we ended up actually building a very ambitious ambassador program um, which started off with a group of 50 to 200 in the first year or so, then scaling quite rapidly globally to um, 
uh, roughly 10,000. Um, so trying to actually go in, identify key organizers, so club heads, your head of households, your one friend who was in charge of all the utilities, um, residences, faculties, and really creating like this battle plan of how can we how can we align ourselves with university communities, but then build our own? So build this awesome community of non-transactional users who aren't incentivized by give 10, get 10, but instead we're aligned with the problems that we were solving. So instead of you having to be that one annoying friend who is consistently asking people to awkwardly pay them back, now it was more like let the app be annoying for you so you don't have to be um and now they can do more of the things they wanted to do and really got on board with uh, what tilt became um a big thing to note on this too is like tilt if you think about it was it's a pay or was and is a payments app uh, and there's like few things that are less sexy than let's say actually paying people back in college like people don't want to talk about that. <laughs> but through our community and this ambassador program, all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden, people wanted to be a part of that. And we were able to drive this massive adoption of crazy ambassadors who were our eyes and ears on the campus, who were able to now actually help us scale that community. So we had uh, heads of different schools that were elected and they each had their own, um, they each were helping us uh, scale out at each one of the campuses. We had like an elite squad or a tilt mafia, similar to PayPal mafia. <laughs> of All of a sudden these leaders that were starting to come up within the community and it was really growing on its own. Um, and it ended up becoming so powerful that um, me and one other guy on the team ended up actually building a whole microsite that helped actually automate the intake and actual separate onboarding of those ambassadors and teach them how to now not just use Tilt, but talk about it on a scalable way. And that became a huge growth engine for us. Very nice. So, I mean, you've done this a few times now, and as well as it, VoiceFlow, um, you have as well, like building up a really strong community there. What are some of the things like that you feel that you need to get right in the early days to, in order to build a community that really is going to be sort of those advocates and uh, really uh, like sort of um, be able to amplify your voice uh, in the market? I think like a key thing um, that, that people try to do with community at the beginning is number one, like I will preface this with, it's always great to try to build a community and try to do that, but there are certain products that lend a much easier path towards them. There are definitely like, you see a lot more evangelism and uh, a lot more of strong community voices around products that are extremely like end user focused. So very, even if they are in B2B, they're extremely good at satisfying like the actual consumer. Um, so that's like one thing to think about. But in terms of actually starting your community, uh, I think a core thing to really nail down is what type of community do you want? The one that I'm talking about is that evangelist, is that advocate style ambassador community that isn't necessarily motivated because you have offered them $50 on Amazon to go do an action. So a non-transactional relationship is really what you're trying to build. And the biggest mistake that I see with a lot of companies when they first try to decide that they want a community is that they force that. And they force that with paid and they force that with transactional uh, exchanges 
when what you really, really want is you want to figure out who are your early adopters, who are the ones that really love your product and want to be aligned with your team, who are motivated by wanting to talk to other power users, who are like actually wanting to get behind and get that like personal or a different type of um, dopamine hit other than cash. Yeah. Um, and the truth is that's, that's a lot harder because it's a lot more manual at the beginning than I think people uh, really think about. It's a lot of interviewing, talking, um, and really trying to connect people um, in a lot of ways. Very nice. I like those. So two tips, like really just, uh, first of all, it's maybe not for all businesses. It's really important to sort of understand that and uh, first figure out if it is for your business, but then also really trying to figure out what are going to be those key motivators and drivers that are going to motivate them to want to be a part of this community, uh, but where you're not incentivizing or you're not sort of uh, offering a transaction in return for becoming a part of that community. Um, so when we think about like the concepts of churn and retention and uh, looping in a community into the mix, sort of what are some of the things, uh, impacts that you see that a community has on churn and retention and in your experience sort of like uh, how powerful has it been uh, for the businesses you've worked with building up communities? Yeah, absolutely. Like community is such a core uh, and amazing pillar for us uh, here at uh, here at VoiceFlow and was huge for us across, honestly, every company that I've been at, even at Clio, which you wouldn't even imagine would be kind of at at the forefront of this massive community of lawyers who are just obsessed with the product. <laughs> um, but I think like a, a core thing that a lot of people kind of forget about with community, and I think this happens a lot with things that are less tangible or things that um, aren't nearly as defined channels when it comes to ROI, is that to me, community is a way of you actually increasing retention and protecting from churn. Um, and the reason being is where I've seen all across the companies that uh, I've worked at is that community is number one, an awesome way to actually engage your users and have like a pretty steady feedback loop. Number two is always like say if you're stumped and at least for us, like we're in a new industry, we want to constantly be in contact with the people that are using the tool and trying to figure out the edge cases to help inform our product roadmap. And another ways of thinking about this as well on more of, let's say, even like hedging, um, as you can imagine in startups, there's a lot of times where things are shipping very quickly. Sometimes things break. It's the reality of how life is. And being able to grow this massive community and grow that love and um, that like strong relationship with your customers where it doesn't feel like you're that company. It feels like, oh, I know this person at X company or I have a relationship with X is you're actually also building this like protective hedge for when stuff does hit the fan. Um, Number one, you'll probably hear about it really, really quickly within your community. And number two, they're gonna be a lot more patient about it, um, which is really, really crucial, especially on early days when you may be a little bit more strapped for cash or maybe when like things are a little bit tight and you're trying to figure out why are people churning or what's happening. It's a really awesome way of even just like logging that and seeing the natural conversations or Q&A that happens. And oftentimes what happens when you actually nurture a strong community that way is they start to help each other. And now you become more of this passive observer where you can come in and you can just surprise and delight them and be able to work with them. And that's been really, really helpful for us as well, even 
as like our product is growing globally without us even really being able to having users who are, let's say in Japan, as an example, be able to answer questions that come up in Japanese that we can't. Um, and those are all these unsaid ROI <laughs> um, terms that make communities such a strong meter for retention. Yeah, I love that. There's so much in there that you just said now. So I think definitely having that personal equity build up and building that relationship, um, making allowing people to be a lot more forgiving is interesting. But I think also what you're talking to now is really having uh, a community that is like basically in a lot of ways doing your job for you uh, and allowing you to scale faster. And I really love that aspect of sort of like now you're saying answering question Japanese, which your team probably wouldn't get to at least for the next few years. Uh, but being able to have someone who's an advocate actually like helping guide others through the process and even in some ways to onboarding for you is is amazing. Yeah, uh, like on the note as well, like we even, we have this amazing guy who's come on board, his name's Nicholas and he's based in Paris. And he, we hired him to help us with enterprise, uh, enterprise or large CS problems. And he came on because we saw him in our group answering people's crazy questions and debugging stuff for them. And like, it also ends up becoming a crazy pipeline for hiring. And that's one of the things that even I've seen over the years, it's been paying dividends where that, that huge group of ambassadors that were once in university and were so gung ho and understood and helped us grow, um, have now over the years become my interns and have become people that I now see as peers amongst different startups here in Toronto and will definitely continue to be hiring and helping out, um, because that lives far beyond the product, um, as you could probably imagine for a lot of cases. Yeah. Uh, so I think like this is, is well, super interesting from this sense that you mentioned, like uh, building a community, you don't really see the direct ROI. And I think it's also one of the things when it comes to churn and retention is like the churn and retention is a result of so many different inputs and they're just really the output metrics. And uh, like a lot of you've spoken to now, I can see being really valuable input metrics that will push the needle and move it forward. Uh, but then on the other side as well, there's like, I think one thing that's normally difficult with building a community starts is really, uh, without having that direct ROI and being able to justify an expense is like, how do you go about getting the resources and how do you go about managing community, uh, from within your company? Like, what are some of your tips that you've done in the past, like being small, nimble startups and being able to grow out community and actually manage, uh, it effectively? Yeah, I think like the, the honest truth is community is one of those things that I I wish you could say is like something that you do on like the side of your desk. And I, the, the honest truth is it's not like, it's one of those things that you, you really do need to be community centric if you want that to be a meaningful channel for you. And like in the same way that you do that with any channel. Um, I think like the, the biggest thing when you're a little bit more scrapped at the beginning, which I actually think community is an awesome growth lever for uh, startups that aren't, necessarily like rich with funding or have a bunch of resources because it does help with all these other things. So justify it based on like having that product feedback loop, justify it by understanding that for instance, an easy way of thinking about that is when someone signs up for your product and in your onboarding flow for emails, like get them or give them a CTA to join the community if they want to get more involved. Like then now all of a sudden it's like part of your funnel, <laughs> right? Um, or there's other ways where you can also be thinking about it where um, communities also exist on other platforms. So how can you pull them in or choose a platform that will 
make it easier for you to manage. I think a big mistake that I see with, uh, in particular startups or people who are trying community for the first time is they, they go multi-platform and they do that from like the get go, <laughs> where you'll see a Facebook group, a Slack group, something maybe on spectrum, like uh, a discourse. Um, and like that is a lot of work. Um, where it becomes really like malleable and really like really good for a company is when it's in one centralized spot where you are able to live where your audience is. So let's say for instance, if you're dealing with all developers, like go look at probably like Reddit probably has a lot of them or Spectrum because it's bought by GitHub <laughs> versus like with, let's say when we were Storyflow instead of VoiceFlow, we originally went on Facebook because that's where the parents are <laughs> and yeah. we want to engage with them there. And same with university students, like Facebook was an awesome place for that. Uh, we're seeing with VoiceFlow, Facebook continues to be a really awesome place because you can look for groups based on hobbies and now actually get people from those groups to join your group and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of like awesome ways of thinking about a community and justifying it very loosely for like product feedback for one, number two on um, helping for lead generation and number three also as a sounding board which I think is one that uh, a, a lot of people kind of forget about. But a good example of that being even uh, more recently, like Notion uh, launched for students and they rallied their community of people who love that product and did that via email, super easy, asking if they wanted to help them out like by sharing some stuff on an announcement. They didn't tell us what the announcement was until the day of and lo and behold, now you go onto Twitter that day when it launches and there are so many people talking about it. And that's seeded organically through community. Didn't cost them anything to do that. Um, and it's the same thing. We did that same strategy with Tilt. When we were launching a new feature, we engaged our ambassadors and got them to use Thunderclap to like queue up all of their socials so we could try to get everything out at the same time. And even with VoiceFlow, where we're lucky enough that um, the product hunt community and the people that are on there are our target with designers and developers and early innovators. So being able to leverage our community and let them know that, hey, check out something like we may be launching new things and like this is where we're going to do it is an awesome value add. Um, and now all of a sudden, every single time that you launch something new, you're de-risking it with your community, but you're also, it's a percentage game where only X percentage of this large community that you're growing needs to engage for it to be successful. Yeah, I love that. And it's actually something that uh, we chat about with Michael Redboard uh, previously on the show. Uh, and something that he said as well, uh, it really struck me sort of like in the early days, uh, marketing is your voice, uh, but then in, in a startup, marketing is typically the voice. But as you become a scale up, like your customers become the voice. So I think like starting community very, very early on, you sort of nurturing that behavior and you're encouraging it. So like you say, like Notion now when they're launching a new product, and I saw that all over Twitter, sort of like Notion for students. Um, and uh, like you have these avid evangelists for you just really sort of amplifying your voice. Uh, I think it's the ultimate position you can be in as a company. And it's definitely one of the biggest drivers for growth, like as you say, going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So the next thing I wanted to touch on a little bit, uh, because I know you have, uh, have had quite a lot of experience working on, is onboarding uh, flows. Uh, and maybe you want to pick uh, one of the favorite onboarding projects that you worked on, one of the companies, and walk us through uh, like what you did and uh, why you thought it was successful and enjoyed the project. 
Yeah, I think actually like a good example that I'll talk about because I think it actually like feeds off of the community side is um, like I said, me and one other guy built an entire microsite for our investors and it had a separate onboarding and it had a whole, like it was basically a whole nother product that was built um, around uh, rewarding and teaching people how to talk about Tilt rather than just use it. So in, in the same way, we were trying to productize what our ambassador program had then, had then become. Um, so one of the things that, um, like number one, I'm a huge supporter of onboarding as an absolute crucial sprint that companies need to be spending way more time on. Um, the biggest reason is that 100% of your users will always hit onboarding, but 100% will never hit your full product. And oftentimes what ends up happening is you see a fight to win on features or a fight to win on um, things that we think that people are trying to go in and use from the day one. Yeah, so like not enough people, I think, think about how do you actually curate that first day or that first onboarding experience. And the way that I like to think about onboarding is instead of thinking about it as like the seven day or 30 day process that a lot of people tend to do is think about it more like the lifespan of a fruit fly or a bucket list, if you will, of what would happen if you had a user for one day and assume that that's your lifespan. What would they do in that day? What could they actually accomplish? Is there a part of your product that actually gives them a feeling of what, um, I, I wanna like stay away from saying the aha moment because in some ways it's, it's not just an aha moment, it's more just like, do they see value in it, period. It doesn't have yeah. to be like the core thing that you're trying to deliver. Like for instance, in an invoicing tool, you're probably not gonna send an invoice in the first day, which would be like theoretically like the goal of that. But instead, yeah. like they may be able to see like what uh, an actual time track would look like things like that. Um, I, th I think as well, like what you're saying is, is very interesting. And it's like, uh, obviously like hundred percent of users are going to go through the onboarding flow, but it's also that most attention you're ever going to get from your users is that first day or that first sort of experience. And uh, like under optimizing for that situation, I think is a huge missed opportunity. It's like people come in, they're excited about your product and maybe you can't get them to that uh, sort of end value that they're achieving, but really trying to make sure that you're protecting their psychology and uh, like, bumping them along their journey is super critical. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, the framework that I like to use with my team is always around video games actually. Cause I actually think video games and the design behind them and that UX experience they've perfected so much over years um, is brilliant for onboarding. Um, if you think about it as let's say like the core things that are in a video game in day one is you go through like a tutorial zone at the first beginning where you're a little safe you're not going to break anything. Um, and you do like one or two things, a, like I was going to say shit ton, um, uh, one or two things a ton of times. Yeah. Um, you and, said it anyway. Yeah. yeah. I said it, I figured you'd bleep it out. Um, <laughs> um, a ton of times. And, um, and basically those are your core actions. Those are your level ones, the foundational actions that make the rest of your product super powerful. Um, and so you start with that and then now you map out the rest of your features or the rest of your functions in levels. So, um, you could take a look at, so for instance, in the example of, let's say, um, the, the tilt thing that I had just said with our ambassadors, like super easy foundational thing is they probably need to know that you can send requests 
send money between friends. But um, the big thing is that it's all revolved around like this UI of this bar that gets filled as people actually complete their payments. So like there are ways that we can teach them that, whether that is through um, actually showing them what that looks like. So for us in that onboarding flow, we actually had that as your status bar. So that filled as everything that you were doing. So we're kind of subconsciously telling them that that's what completion looks like. Um, and on another hand, like we, that whole platform was built on points. Um, and it's a point system that didn't exist in our actual product. So we needed to kind of explain what that looked like. So for every step in that onboarding, we were extremely conscious of letting them know that they got points for completing each one of those things. And at the end, um, we told them to join our ambassador program uh, Facebook group and also complete their first purchase on our ambassador marketplace portal and get their t-shirt, like all the swag that they need to just like get started. And this helped us protect the cost that every single ambassador that had our swag actually has been onboarded and educated, but also like helped them learn um, and get an idea of what the core functions of how they were gonna interact with that portal was, which was you perform actions, you get points and you cash out. Um, and that was all done within uh, a 10 minute span. Yeah, I, I love this concept of sort of incentivized onboarding, like really trying to uh, motivate users to take key actions that you know are gonna be valuable for them, but then also giving them that sort of extra Motivation. We chatted about this uh, with Jenna from Prodpad uh, early in the days where they actually used their trial experience as a motivation um, for to drive core actions within their product where they actually sort of uh, they want to do, for example, set up a new project that will give you an extra two days of your trial uh, or invite a team member another three days. And they really try to help extend that period that people could trial their product for by using sort of key actions needed to take in, in the app and incentivizing users actually uh, giving them value in two ways. Not only like do they know, know what the value of the product is and they can actually use it effectively, but also having more time or like in your case, you say having the swag and then you know that the time you've invested or spending money in these people is really uh, for people that have gone through the process and uh, are seeing the value in your product. Yeah, and like kind of to, to the, my earlier point about like leveling that out too is like not everything needs to be done in that first in interaction. And it's also important to think about instead of thinking about onboarding as this 30 day window for them to complete like this massive milestone is breaking that down into like smaller challenges or mini levels and starting to add on one extra action that is a little bit harder than those like those early function um, or level one tutorial stuff that you're trying to teach them and get them to slowly learn how to get more advanced at that tool. So like a good example of that uh, in onboarding, and I know everyone talks about superhuman when it comes to onboarding, but um, like on your first day, they walk you through um, and get your email set up uh, on superhuman, which number one, like you're pretty used to, or most people are pretty used to their email client before they get on superhuman. So they're kind of like unteaching themselves a little bit before they teach themselves how to use superhuman, which is kind of cool. Um, and day one is they just want you to learn how to um, how to archive um, or mark done what's in your inbox so you get to inbox zero. So they gave you a really easy goal and there's one action that's gonna help you do that which is like maybe you're gonna reply to some of them but ultimately you're gonna mark done and then you're gonna have no more emails in your inbox. Um, so that's level one. Then level two in a few days, they're starting to now actually tell you more things that you can do, teach you shortcuts 
send you even a game so you can learn those shortcuts in a fun way, even if you don't have emails in, uh, in your inbox that you can kind of play around with. So like these are awesome examples of scalable ways that people are really like challenging what onboarding is because onboarding isn't a welcome survey. It is a way that you teach people how to use your product and that doesn't have to be done in one fell swoop. Yeah, I definitely see this as a big mistake. A lot of people make is really trying to just shove everything in from day one. Um, so I, I love that analogy. Um, I think like using the uh, TV game as an, uh, as an analogy is really brilliant and sort of just taking that layered approach that uh, you don't need to layer everything on in the first go, but really trying to add a little bit more levels of complexity as you go through. And similar to video games, like as you progress through different levels, so does your character become more powerful. You in some ways become superhuman. Um, the, the more levels that you surpass, even though they do slightly get more challenging, um, your player becomes more powerful. And I think in this case, like uh, your users, as they progress, they don't need to know everything from day one. Uh, but the more you layer on and the more you teach them, like they become more and more powerful users uh, of your tool. And I think this is maybe something that we fall short on when it comes to onboarding. Like you say, we think of it as just as one big project and it's like binary and either is or it isn't and it's done or it's not. Uh, but really thinking of, and taking like a systematic approach to it and really thinking about like your users and as game players and how you can craft a, an experience around it to ensure like on their terms, they're experiencing your product, they're learning about your product and they're becoming more powerful with it day by day. Uh, so I love that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Emily, like... I have a hypothetical question for you now. Uh, we are still running up on time as well. Um, let's say that um, you're about to join a new company um, and you arrive at this company and churn and retention is just really not doing well. Um, and you've been tasked with trying to turn things around. What would be some of the things that you do in the first three months uh, of your time at that company to try and tackle the problem? I think like definitely th this comes down to like there's very clearly a problem. <laughs> um, I think like poor uh, poor retention numbers is always a, a, a like a symptom of a bunch of things. But the first one I would definitely look at is that classic how like do we have product market fit? In that case, probably not. <laughs> um, and the the biggest thing that I actually like to do when I first start someplace, or I'm a strong believer in, and uh, is actually if you're onboarding or if people are turning really really fast after signing up for something is swipe out whatever automated thing that you have there and make that manual. So that could be like you onboard every single person that comes on. And that's something that I have always been a strong proponent of, especially when you launch new versions of something or when you're trying to take a really big product bet. Um, your onboarding shouldn't just be an assumption or your activation stuff shouldn't be an assumption. It should be you hand-holding or even just doing a mix of like blind or meta testing versus um, you going in and actually having someone walk you through and give them one straight goal. Okay, sign up for this thing. Okay, now that you've done that, like create your first project as an example and watching what happens. So I think like the first step would be actually sitting down and trying to get a hold of users, both those that are happy as well as those that have left and actually try to see and try to categorize what they love or what they didn't. So very classic product research. Um, and then the next, which is a little bit more radical and definitely not scalable, is onboard as many of them as you can as like 
by yourself <laughs> or um, try to schedule calls with them and try to actually do that and walk them through the product. Because very quickly, what you'll realize by doing that is you'll see the, the similarities. You'll be able to record that that is the first thing that you're going to be automating. That, that same similar conversation or the same questions, that's what you need to solve for. So I think like that would definitely be the core stuff. Um, and in that scenario, always like talk to the customer or try to get in front of as many as you can. Yeah, I love that as well. Like, I mean, obviously talking to the customer is something that we, we talk about a lot and it's mentioned pretty much every time uh, I ask this question. But I like as well what you've added another layer on top of that is like doing something that doesn't really scale, but the value that you're going to get out of it, like onboarding uh, customers onto your product and really walking them through it. Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity because you, you're speaking to people at the moment that they're excited, they want to get started, but uh, like it's an opportunity for you to see where the gaps are and uh, like what are the processes you can be automating and what you should be uh, signaling and flagging with customers like to automate into processes in the future. Yeah, like I think I think a big thing as well, just from like scaling companies as well, is like make that part of your culture. Um, uh, a big thing that I actually really, really like, well, love, but also didn't love, <laughs> but it was extremely valuable, uh, was, uh, um, this was something that I, I saw back at Tilt, but I've seen it at a bunch of different companies that actually make every single person do like an hour a week of like CS or tickets yeah. uh, or trying to talk to people when they're, you know, in a particular potential churn position. Um, and the biggest reason is you're not only building empathy with the user and actually making sure that everyone has that connection, but you're also building empathy internally. So everyone seems to be more aligned on what's going wrong in the experience. Um, how difficult is, let's say, even from like a technical empathy side. So how difficult it is to actually perform a job that you're not doing and uh, not doing day to day. So yeah. I think that's also a really awesome example of just like trying to establish that from the get go. Absolutely. And then as all well, like, I like the point that that creates empathy, not only externally with your customers, but internally, uh, like seeing the frustrations and issues that sort of maybe CSO supports are going through on a daily basis uh, that could be automated internally. Um, yeah. And yeah, and I love again, like sort of that angle of um, like doing things that don't scale, like personally onboarding, because I think this concept as well doesn't necessarily need to be applied to onboarding new customers itself, but sometimes like when you do take bigger product bets and uh, typically you just roll out with a launch and send out a PA and then just hope for the best. Um, but uh, like there may be cases where this makes a lot of sense and you don't take that sort of full out uh, approach at the beginning. You really sort of take a systematic approach, onboard your customers, figure out sort of what are the pain points, like what really should be the message when you do like sort of bigger, wider uh, announcement to all of your users yeah well like i think as well like when you take that approach especially on big product bets is like you also want to be able to make sure that you're matching who's signing up as much as like they're trying to find a solution right so your products may not be the solution for everybody but it may be a perfect solution for a certain segment and odds let's say if you want your first line of people who come on your first cohort of people um, that are using your product to absolutely love what you're building is it's also okay to be selective. And by putting up um, a barrier where it's you're choosing who gets in, which is a very classic growth scale um, tactic, but like making it a little harder to sign up sometimes often also equates to better retention. Um, if you're actually picking and choosing the right type of people that you built the product for, um, or trying to make sure that people are like, 
are actually trying to solve a problem that you're creating a solution for. Because that oftentimes, the truth is, is like people don't know too much about a whole product until they're actually in it. And you can't assume that they do. So being able as, let's say, a product expert at whatever company that you're at um, and being able to identify like what were the problems that the solution is great for and then going after those people and being creative about the sign up process to see can you surface, do these people match that problem is a good way of also trying to protect your retention number. Absolutely. Uh, just being really focused and systematic about it. Cool. So Emily, I see we're up on time for the day. Uh, just maybe for the audience, like how can they keep up to date with you, your work? Uh, if there's anything last thing that you'd like to share with us before we end today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like uh, if you're interested in trying to figure out more on uh, more on the voice space, or if you're curious on trying to keep in touch, if there's any questions, like definitely uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's just uh, Emily Lanetto. Um, at, well, Emily Lanetto on Twitter and across LinkedIn as well. I'm happy to chat there. Um, I'm sure there'll be links <laughs> available. Absolutely. Uh, very cool. Well, Emily, thanks so much for joining today. I uh, really, really appreciate the time and uh, wish you the best of luck going forward. Awesome. Thanks. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.